0: Chapter 2, Understanding Curriculum as Culture quote, Culture is in fact a prison unless one knows that there is a key to unlock it. While it is true that culture binds human beings in many unknown ways, the restraint it exercises is the groove of habit and nothing more. Humans did not evolve culture as a means of smothering themselves, but as a medium in which to move, live, breathe, and develop. End quote. Although there are numerous ways to engage in curriculum inquiry, we have found that considering curriculum as culture is a way to attain a holistic understanding of education, not only as planned curricular content, but is experienced or lived, quote, in the presence of people and their meanings, end quote. We have also learned that this line of inquiry helps educators to go beyond awareness of explicit curriculum as a set of guidelines or objectives to, quote, make the commonplace problematic. End quote, by challenging the idea of curriculum as a singular reality, instead we consider curriculum as deeply influenced by culture, and thus to do curriculum inquiry is quote, to become aware of belief systems that influence what is considered normal or alternative or simply unthinkable. End quote. Curriculum theorist Maxine Green eloquently makes the case that teachers must see through an anthropological lens when they do curriculum inquiry to, quote, become aware of the structure and patterns of the cultures in which they teach, of orthodoxies and sacred writs, and their roles in the sense-making process, end quote. She introduces the compelling metaphor, teacher is stranger, to explain how teachers can use curriculum inquiry to become critically conscious, to, quote, break with fixed customary modes of seeing, end quote. Green believes that in this way, teachers can remove the blinders of complacency to understand the norms and meanings that exist in classrooms and schools. When teachers learn to see their cultures and, quote, may liberate themselves for understanding and for choosing, end quote, they may liberate themselves for reflective action. However, when, quote, teachers do not see their classrooms and schools as cultures and become enmeshed within the structures of schooling, they may accept the prevailing culture as normal or unalterable, end quote. The nature of culture. To perceive curriculum as culture, we must start with an essential grasp of the nature of culture. Anthropologists describe culture as, quote, that complex whole, which includes knowledge, belief, art, morals, law, custom, and any other capabilities and habits acquired by a human as a member of society, end quote. Within this complex whole are shared ways in which people perceive, learn, categorize, prize, employ language, think about reality or common sense, show emotion, utilize time and space, work, play, and deal with each other. Accordingly, culture influences epistemological beliefs. Do people consider knowledge as authoritative, unchanging, or sacred, or fluid, personal, or open to question? Culture essentially means sense-making. It becomes the system in which people organize their perceptions of their environment and their lives. Culture is, quote, the meaning which people create and which creates people as members of societies, end quote. quote Homo sapiens is the creature who makes sense. She literally produces sense through her experience, interpretation, contemplation, and imagination, and she cannot live in a world without it. The importance of this sense making in human life is reflected in a crowded conceptual field. Ideas, meaning, information, Wisdom, understanding, intelligence, sensibility, learning, fantasy, opinion, knowledge, belief, myth, tradition. End quote. Although individuals will not have identical understandings, the existence of a culture suggests that there are shared systems of meanings as revealed in ideas and public and aesthetic expression. Culture also can be interpreted as symbols and rituals. Symbols represent cultural values and have mutual meanings to individuals and may even provoke similar responses such as awe or devotion. Symbols are woven into activities that have significance to members of the culture. These rituals, as opposed to mere habits, quote, form the warp on which the tapestry of culture is woven, end quote. Symbols and rituals socialize individuals and help them to articulate their understandings of their lives and values. Individuals learn their culture and internalize its complex system of values and behaviors through infancy, childhood, and adolescence. Child-rearing embodies a multitude of messages about what it means to become an adult, from appropriate nonverbal communication to the specific rules and beliefs that should be transmitted to the next generation, to the ways in which a culture defines itself or what it strongly emphasizes, for example, whether it values individuals, the tribe, or the nation, the young or elders artistic expression, or economic output. Complex patterns of knowledge and interaction are learned through formal and informal means of cultural transmission, such as parenting, role modeling, religion, story and myths, art, media, and schooling. These patterns include action chains, in which a fairly predictable series of actions, one followed by another, take place, and thus common understandings emerge. We see culture as action chains of daily behaviors, such as get up, get dressed, go to work, etc., or how people within a culture commonly respond to a problem, such as you call your family to help you, you call representatives of a government, you work out collaborative situations, or you respond with aggressive behavior. When people are involved in acting out these cultural action chains, their behavior seems completely ordinary to them. Only alternative patterns would seem odd or jarring. In addition, we can understand culture as, quote, a continuing dialogue that it revolves around pivotal areas of concern in a given community, end quote. For instance, in the dominant European-American culture in the United States, this dialogue often is focused on the theme of individuality. It is a motif in history, arts, in the selection of cultural heroes and heroines, in advertising, in political and everyday conversation, and in the way schools customarily assess the behaviors and work of students. Continuing dialogue could also enter on a problem. Continuing dialogue could also center on a problem. For example, declining standards of morality in popular culture or public life. Becoming aware of culture. Anthropologists caution that we usually are unaware of the culture that surrounds us because culture appears as usual life, what seems normal or natural. Quote, if a fish were to become an anthropologist, the last thing it would discover would be water, End quote. This saying, attributed to anthropologist Margaret Mead, warns us that familiarity with the surrounding environment makes it terribly difficult to perceive the medium in which we live. In the normal, undisturbed course of living, we seldom recognize that it is our culture that influences what we take in and pay attention to, what choices we consider to be normal, and what we intend to do about those choices. Likewise, it is not obvious how cultural knowledge becomes communicated or internalized, Directives about how to live one's life often remain unconscious, or, at the very least, unexamined. Why do we have such a problem perceiving and examining our culture? We are hampered because culture is our lens, our way of seeing and reasoning. Quote, We cannot even think about culture except through the categories of thought that we have learned from the culture we grew up in, and the one in which we have been trained. End quote. In order to see differently so that we can understand our own culture, we must step outside our culture-laden views and, quote, must struggle to examine our own culture in the same framework as every other culture, end quote. How then can we see our culture? One way to perceive the culture in which we live is to experience disequilibrium or culture shock by living in another culture. Only after extensive travel or staying for years in another culture do individuals come back to their native culture, recognize behaviors or customs, and properly attribute these familiar patterns as belonging to the culture. Previously, before experiencing another culture, what seemed natural, ordinary, normal, or was indistinguishable. Another way to see our culture is to discipline ourselves to use a systematic means of analysis. An insightful approach to understanding culture is to study the primary message systems within any given culture, a complex series of activities interrelated in many ways. We thus can pose a series of questions such as, how is society organized and structured? How do people think about and deal with the environment? What activities are considered work and which are considered play? Thus, we can learn about a culture's implicit and explicit rules for appropriate behavior in such realms as social interactions, use of space, the rhythm of life and activities, gender and humor. An analytic classification helps us to understand how a culture has its unique characteristics and how its organization reflects a pattern of innumerable complex interactions that, in totality, make it unlike others. Still, the task of perceiving a distinct culture is made more complicated because human cultures do not exist in isolation. Cultures influence other cultures and share some attributes. Furthermore, within a culture, a small microculture may exist that possesses unique qualities, but shares many features with the larger macro culture, and in fact, it may influence the larger culture. As people interact with others from different cultural groups, their cultures do not remain singular or static. Recognizing a singular culture is no simple task. They are hindrances to our ability to perceive and understand culture and yet recognition of the existence of culture and the spheres in which cultural teaching takes place gives us insight about powerful influences upon our perceptions, behaviors, and values. If we remain clueless, unable to see or understand the predominant patterns or forces that affect our lives, we are without the ability to make substantial changes in the way we conduct our personal lives, live in our society, and, as we hope to explain, educate our young, seeing curriculum as culture. In recent years, we have come to realize that classrooms and schools, as well as universities and other educational settings, have their own cultures. However, scrutiny of such cultures brings forth many of the same difficulties that we have when we study any culture. There rarely are pure cultures that develop without influences from others. We may be unaware of how we learn our culture, and we may find it hard to discern patterns of beliefs and behaviors that seem normal to us. More importantly, Although people may share similar understandings of their societies and everyday life and hold shared values, nevertheless, individuals construe their own personal interpretations of events, practices, and symbols. They are not merely docile actors in a scripted, cultural play, but dynamic creators of meaning. Thus, when we think about a school or classroom culture, we must simultaneously imagine not a static entity, but an assemblage of individuals who have different family cultures, different understandings and values influenced by race or ethnicity, gender, sexual orientation, social class, and religion, as well as their own creativity and imagination. That in the classroom or school they participate in common activities, understand these activities somewhat similarly, and affirm certain values about knowledge, learning, and conduct. We can suggest the existence of a culture, albeit not in a monolithic sense. We learn to see classrooms and schools as cultures by seeking answers to key questions, In what activities do people participate? What are everyday practices? What rules and laws influence these practices? What behaviors and attitudes are encouraged or discouraged? How are social groups organized? What are the relationships between students and instructors? Who has power to make decisions and who does not? And how are these power relationships maintained? How does the surrounding community and other outside stakeholders historically and currently influence the school? What has symbolic meaning in the environment? And in what ways are these models communicated? What systems of thought are valued and modeled? What is the nature of the course of study? Whose history or literature is considered important or universal? What undertakings and talents are prized and rewarded? What do people believe to be appropriate goals of education? Clearly, all aspects of curriculum reflect culture. In the culture of education, Brunner provides many examples of culture as a mirror to describe and interpret curriculum. Quote, schools have always been highly selective with respect to the uses of mind they cultivate, which uses are to be considered basic, which frills, which the school's responsibility, and which the responsibility of others, which for girls and which for boys, which for working class children and which for swells. Some of this selectivity was doubtless based on considered notions about what the society required or what the individual needed to get along. Much of it was a spillover of folk or social class tradition. Even the more recent and seemingly obvious objective of equipping all with basic literacy is premised on moral political grounds, however pragmatically those grounds may be justified. School curricula and classroom climates always reflect inarticulate cultural values as well as explicit plans, and these values are never far removed from considerations of social class, gender, and the prerogatives of social power. End quote. Brunner illustrates how curriculum reflects cultural beliefs, folk traditions, as well as social and political values and organization. Using a cultural lens, we begin to regard curriculum not just as an object, content, but as a series of interwoven dynamics. Curriculum conceptualized as culture educates us to pay attention to belief systems, values, behaviors, language, artistic expression, the environment in which education takes place, power relationships, and most importantly, the norms that affect our sense about what is right or appropriate. For example, a deep-seated norm about curriculum is that it is linear, taught sequentially, and divided into separate disciplines. Likewise, school cultures reflect the norm of discontinuity. Quote, Modern American culture reveals an aesthetic preference for efficient production, which is manifested in schedules, refined tasks, and interchangeable designs. Simply put, we are used to engaging in one activity, stopping it, and beginning another. In school, students are used to going from class to class, which may be unrelated in content or method. For example, going from an art class to math. In the workplace, one may be used to working on one project, stopping it for a meeting, and on a topic of a different nature, and then returning to the earlier project. Even on the assembly line, where one repeats a series of tasks, one's job is to return to an earlier motion rather than follow the sequence of activities to build the item. Thus, the job has a start-and-stop quality to it." Through the discipline of anthropology, or ethnographic inquiry, we can better understand curriculum by evoking authentic representation of schooling, looking for patterns of belief and behavior within classrooms and educational systems. Ethnography allows us to study curriculum not just as explicit aims or plans, but as experiences encountered by teachers and students, the values inherent in the environment of the classroom and school and connections to the encompassing culture surrounding the school. Ethnography enables us to look systematically at the cultures of classrooms and schools, to look beyond planned outcomes, purposes, or instructional strategies, to see how curriculum is manifest as culture through rituals, customs, values, and the implicit beliefs of folk pedagogies. The ethnographic approach to studying curriculum suggests some ways of overcoming the roadblocks to understand culture. To begin, ethnographers suggest that those who study classrooms, schools, and communities must temporarily imagine themselves as strangers to get through the roadblocks to perception created by familiarity. Thus, to help see the culture of our own schools, we should first observe educational systems that are unfamiliar. We might, for example, discern the beliefs held by other cultures about the benefits of knowledge and who should be educated to come to terms with our often unstated or taken-for-granted assumptions about schooling. Or, we would identify dominant patterns of instruction and how, in other cultures, students and teachers interact, to spur us into paying attention to our own methods and behaviors. Even without leaving our homes, we can still gain insight about our own system of education by studying aspects of schooling in different cultures, for example, through research, journals, or artifacts. For instance, by reading the history texts of other cultures, we may be better able to see how our own textbooks sanction values, such as nationalism. Exposure to the unfamiliar through primary sources helps us to better perceive the familiar. Experiencing disequilibrium also can occur within one's own neighborhood. A visit to an alternative school in which students choose their own course of study seems fairly foreign when one's classroom has a mandated course of study that everyone must teach or learn, and the other way around. We are called upon to examine our own assumptions and structures when we see a classroom or lecture hall. With its orderly rows compared to a community-based school or class in which the neighborhood and the resources of the city comprise the learning environment. What we experience as routine is called into question when educators have opportunities to see others' situations or hear their stories. But without experiencing disequilibrium, how shall we understand the goals and lived experiences of curriculum within more familiar settings? For example, classrooms in our own workplace or schools similar to ours? How can we make the familiar strange enough for us to be insightful about our own classroom cultures? One possibility for learning about our own practice is to create inquiry along the lines of a qualitative research study. First, we collect data about what we see and hear. We need to capture impressions, engaging in a pilot study, beginning with several snapshots or tape recordings of conversations. Then, we analyze the record we make of ordinary activities and conversations. What visual and linguistic patterns signal us that a culture of curriculum might exist? For example, what images and metaphors permeate speech, art, mission statements, and public relations materials? Would similar actions and dialogue reappear each time we observed? How do people utilize time and space and create ceremonies? How do they apportion power and authority among people? What seems normal to people within that culture, and what seems unusual or even taboo? Eventually we notice patterns of participants' behaviors and the meanings they give to their experiences. We also must study the less overt expectations and behaviors that undergird curricular cultures, the hidden curriculum of unquestioned assumptions and actions. By looking for prominent aspects, the themes or continuing dialogue that point out what members of the culture hold as concerns or aspirations, we start to imagine the existence of a curricular culture. We can pay attention to a core notion or theme that permeates the school and classroom culture tacitly and overtly. What seems to matter most to people? Is there a theme that continues to appear and influence curricular decisions? What commonly held assumptions or beliefs are routinely expressed? When content and practice become recast, what events, ideas, or forces influence change? We need to understand curriculum, in any given place, at any given time, as a confluence of environment, events, and interactions. We also learn by reading documents, the literature of the theory and practice. We develop an understanding of the belief system that is held by those academics, practitioners, or both, who write similarly about curriculum along with those people we observe or talk with in our ethnographic studies. These studies help us develop language to articulate the culture of curriculum. In addition, we need to learn if people who teach or learn in the culture, or advocate for it, identify with ideas expressed decades or centuries ago. Is there a folk pedagogy? That is, a collection of deeply embedded notions of learning, schooling, and teaching, passed along from generation to generation? By historical investigation, we can discover if a culture of curriculum accurately may be linked to long-term commitment to beliefs, actions, or norms. Or, do the issues raised in educational activities notice seem more a response to recent discovery in psychology and educational innovation, or a unique social or technological problem reflecting contemporary concerns and aspirations? Interpretation of our initial observations of classrooms and conversations through recognition of themes, the continuing dialogue, leads us toward identifying the belief systems, premises and names, underpinning a curricular culture. As we talk with students, teachers, administrators, and community, we begin to understand that aims for students, implicitly understood or explicitly set forth, illustrate beliefs about what schools can do for individuals and society. A Framework for Studying Curriculum as Culture We approach the study of curriculum through the development of a systematic framework of analysis that gives us a structure used in the following chapters to describe cultures of curriculum. This heuristic provides the means for us both to see and to question explicit practice, underlying beliefs about teaching and learning, implications of curriculum work, and implicit social and political visions. We begin our depiction of curriculum as culture with a brief crystallization of the curricular culture by presenting a telling quote from an advocate. From the start, we wish to make evident a major idea that distills the essence of the curricular culture, helping us to focus on the cogent elements of visions and practice. When we consider a description of the everyday life in the classroom and or school to provide a snapshot or impression of the culture. This scenario should introduce the themes, beliefs, and practices that we would find if we observe this culture over time. The next part of the heuristic is a summary of major themes. The continuing dialogue manifests in each curricular culture. This is followed by explanation of visions, the aims or purposes for each curricular culture. Further, We depict the historical background of this curriculum in U.S. schooling, including the influencing societal events and forces. We then turn to analyses of the belief systems of the culture, utilizing the concept of commonplaces of curriculum to understand assumptions about students and teachers, content and context, planning and evaluation. We explore explicit beliefs as well as the images and metaphors that implicitly demonstrate them. We begin examination of the belief system by exploring assumptions about learners held by those who create curriculum. We question, how do those who plan or influence curriculum perceive learners? Expectations of learners and learning at the crux of folk pedagogy have dynamic consequences for the development and implementation of curriculum. In this curricular culture, do educators believe that students need basic skills, enrichment, world-class standards, discipline, self-esteem, Are students unique learners with their own interests and styles, at risk or gifted? Do students learn best by hands-on experiments, drills and repetition, or stories? Answers to such questions have a tremendous impact upon curriculum. The questions we pose about learners correlate with conceptualizations of the role of teachers. Within the curricular culture, what does it mean to be a teacher? Is the teacher's fundamental task to create democratic learning communities, to stimulate questioning, to teach language and culture, or to learn about students' passions for learning and to facilitate their attainment of personal goals. We then turn to descriptions of content that characterize a curricular culture. Are there particular books that exemplify learning in this culture? Do required subjects represent traditional academic academic disciplines or interdisciplinary topics or fields of study? Is the major emphasis on instruction, or is it curricular content particularly important? Is the major emphasis on instruction, or is curricular content particularly important? What content is taught and what is ignored? Null curriculum. And what criteria make the difference between content taught and content excluded? Furthermore, do students' interests have any role in content selection? Also, what educational environment do adherents recommend and create? Do they imagine a class with students responding to the active questioning of the teacher? Students engage in projects at workstations? Learners interviewing elders within the community? What is the relationship between students and teachers in the learning process? And in what ways do teachers interact with colleagues and parents? Is the school day broken into segments according to subjects? Do students study within the classroom walls or make their own choices about utilizing the resources of the entire school? We also investigate curriculum planning to make sense of the culture. Do teachers employ particular curriculum content stemming from previously developed models? Is the planning based upon requirements set by the nation, state, district, or school? Do teachers develop curriculum based on their own professional understanding of students' needs or according to their own expertise and interests? Do students, parents, or the community have voice or power in determining curriculum? Finally, how does assessment and evaluation of the curriculum occur? Do standardized tests form the basis for continuation or change? Do learners have opportunities for multiple demonstration of their learning accomplishments? Who evaluates the teachers, and upon what basis does evaluation occur? What do people deem important for making decisions about resources to support curriculum? Who decides the success of curriculum, and upon what grounds? And, is there opportunity to consider or reconsider the aims or worth of the curriculum? For example, do we ask not only if the curriculum is successful, but is it really worth teaching and learning? This heuristic for understanding cultures of curriculum culminates with two pathways for further examination and reflection. First, we consider dilemmas of practice, and secondly, critique of the culture, its essential assumptions, emphasis, and visions. Inquiry into dilemmas of practice enables us to consider what practitioners confront when they teach within the culture. Dilemmas include choices in selecting content, the challenges in preparing to teach within this orientation, and the political issues that bring into question community reaction or the education of parents. Investigation of assumptions and convictions of advocates of each curricular orientation, the critique leads us to probe advocates' social visions and whether or not there are connections between beliefs and actions. Also, we question the pedagogical, social, and political consequences of practice and revisit the idea of the null curriculum by contemplating what is not taught as well as the consequences of inattention or disregard. Finally, we interrogate aims and visions in light of moral or social concerns. Cultures of Curriculum We recognize that it is tremendously difficult to imagine a teacher working only within one curricular structure or to find a separate, isolated culture of curriculum. Exceptions can be found in some alternative schools that consciously adhere to a particular philosophy and sustain a distinct culture of curriculum, but even in many alternative schools, and certainly in most public school classrooms, a multitude of instructional aims and goals for students and society exist side by side. Even those teachers who have a clear vision of their curriculum work, a solid philosophical core understanding, may not consistently teach according to their own ideals because of a variety of factors. Teachers face pressures to meet the demands of numerous constituencies, individual learners, parents, and administrators, as well as community, state, and national influences. Ethnography often shows us that the real world is messy. A myriad of experiences, beliefs, and aims, often inconsistent and contradictory, coexist in that world. Nonetheless, in this book, we intend to illustrate archetypes of cultures of curriculum that are distillates of most real classroom cultures. Although we believe it is crucial to see the implicit curriculum of schools and classrooms by learning how to observe the practice, interactions, taboos, values, and beliefs held about learning and bringing children to adulthood, our purpose is not to disclose a slice of life, despite the intellectual debt we owe to ethnography in making known patterns of meaning. Rather, our intention is to name, articulate, and reveal curricula as visions and belief systems. We analyze these curricular worlds through philosophical inquiry, informed by our understanding of various cultural components. Philosophical inquiry is a powerful means for understanding not only what's going on here, but what is the worth of this activity. Conceptual analysis enables us to examine the interrelatedness among various elements of curriculum and to envision ultimate aims of education and the moral visions of education. Such inquiry encourages us to ask, what is the purpose of curriculum, and how does our curriculum work contribute to the education of the individual and to a good society? Through conceptual analysis, we are able to clarify our beliefs and behaviors, to scrutinize the inconsistencies in our thoughts and actions to consider when our practices conflict with our goals, and to ethically consider the consequences of our actions and aims. Philosophy, however, does not attend to the disordered nature of individuals teaching and learning in actual schools and classrooms and real communities. Holding a particular philosophical aim of education does not necessarily result in a clearly defined guide for putting ideals into practice. A unified philosophical aim for education may not provide much insight on how to create an environment for day-to-day curriculum making and practice. Our approach to curriculum inquiry, accordingly, is a hybrid of the disciplines of anthropology and philosophy. We ground our understanding of curricular cultures within the context of norms and practices and provide a framework for reflection by drawing upon philosophical and ethical inquiry to name, question, and critique visions and practices. In explaining how educators try to put visions into practice, we attempt to balance the ideal and the real by not losing sight of how curriculum workers must grapple with dilemmas about planning, teaching, and evaluating curriculum. In conclusion, for educators who do curriculum inquiry through an anthropological lens, it becomes possible to discern if there is an overarching vision for education and if a coherent curriculum exists. Such inquiry also makes known if an ad hoc curriculum, featuring a multitude of sometimes contradictory purposes and activities, characterizes the experiences of schooling for learners and teachers. To grasp a holistic understanding of Liv's curriculum and to do the serious work of transforming schooling and pedagogy, educators need to understand curriculum as culture. Further, we believe that by comparing personal practices to coherent models, educators gain a deeper understanding of their own curriculum work. A curricular culture framework is a starting point for our comparison and contrast, for contemplating the goals and practices within educators' classrooms, schools, and communities, for asking if practices are congruent with our visions. It is our hope that knowledge of curricular cultures leads to awareness that there are ethical and progressive alternatives to visionless curriculum.